Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Dirk Elston. Dr. Dirk Elston is professor and chairman of the Department of Dermatology and Dermatologic Surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. He is very accomplished as a past president of the American Academy of Dermatology and the American Society of Dermatopathology, has served on the board of directors, the International Society of Dermatopathology, and the American Board of Dermatology, and currently serves as the editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Dr. Elston is a graduate of Jefferson Medical College, did his dermatology residency at Walter Reed Medical Center, and completed a dermatopathology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. He is the author of over 600 peer-reviewed publications, is one of the authors of Andrew's Diseases of the Skin, is Associate Editor-in-Chief of eMedicine Dermatology, and has a great textbook of dermatopathology, which I know a lot of trainees use, mainly with Dr. Tammy Ferringer, that received the highly commended award in the British Medical Association Medical Book Conference. Competition. He's received numerous awards, including the 2008 Walter Nickel Award for Excellence in Dermatopathology Education, the 2013 Founders Award of the American Society of Dermatopathology, and the 2021 Gold Medal of the American Academy of Dermatology. So welcome to Dirk. Thanks so much. Can you share something about you personally with me and the audience? I'm a big gardener, or I'll say a frustrated gardener. I feed deer. <laughs> I don't garden. I feed deer. And both my wife and I like to cook. And our daughter, who's also a derm and derm path, is big into cooking. So that's something we share as a family. Oh, that's nice. One of my first sort of more meaty questions is, what does emotional intelligence mean to you? To me, it equates to empathy. The ability to think outside oneself and think of the other person and the other person's point of view. The first episode for this podcast was on emotional intelligence because I felt that I never really learned about it since there are articles suggesting that empathy decreases in the third year of medical school and that there's compassion fatigue and a lot of burnout among healthcare providers and actually everyone, you know, as the COVID pandemic continues. Do you have ways of keeping that empathy alive, that emotional intelligence alive? I think... The biggest reason why emotional intelligence troughs in the third year of medical school is lack of sleep, just yeah. overall fatigue. The best way to take care of others is take care of yourself a little first. Yeah. Make sure you're sleeping, eating, that you're able to leave your concerns behind and really focus on the patient. And, you know, just reminding yourself and those around you that there is a human being at the other end. It's not just a job. It's a human connection, and we're trying to serve someone on the other side. It's a whole lot easier when you're not just running on adrenaline, just trying to finish the day. I think you do have a sleep routine. Oh, yes. Everyone makes fun of me because everyone knows I'm super early to bed and early to rise. A mentor told me long ago, find out when you're most productive. Some people are night owls. I'm a morning person. So I get up early. I do my best work on the elliptical. The computer perches just perfectly the laptop on the elliptical. Yeah, all that is really good advice. My next main question is, have you encountered failure and how do you process it? We've all encountered failure many times. Somewhere someone told me, wise man once said, wisdom is the sum of our many failures. <laughs> We learn more from our failures than from our successes. Just being honest with yourself, it wasn't the other guy's fault necessarily. Why didn't go well? 
what could I have done differently? It's often a two-way street. You know, you're not the only one who contributed and there are often factors beyond your control. But some of it is deciding what things are worth pursuing and what things really are beyond your control. I think failure, it's in some ways easiest to see with don't have slides since they're static. Go back and look at it. That's actually brilliant because that's a perfect example of where you can go back and everything you had before, do you process it differently this time? Do you do something different this time? And I think we've all faced that as dermatopathologists, right? Wayne White used to refer to as unsolicited follow-up information on a patient. Was there something I missed? Was it just clinical setting? Or was it sampling that this really wasn't representative of the process? Be really honest with yourself, which it was, or you're going to go down the same path again. Do you have an approach or a way of acceptance of the subjectivity involved in things where there's no gold standard kind of other than our pathology diagnosis or a given expert's diagnosis? A few approaches. So one thing is I try not to bias myself going into a case. So first thing I do, look at the glass blind to the history. Then I'm definitely going to look at the history to make sure I've answered the clinician's question. The other thing is, you know, we do, a, as many groups do, we do a daily consensus conference where people look at it. We're sort of informal, but there's always that possibility of the loudest voice in the room or the most respected, most senior voice in the room. Something that Bill Tyler introduced years ago at Geisinger, we have dry erase boards and we have a case that you know there may really be subjectivity here. There may be a difference of opinion and you really want to get into everyone's head and say, how did they come to their thought and not have, especially those who are younger, be reticent to say anything because, well, someone more senior thought something different, so they're not going to speak up. So we designate something's a board case and the dry erase boards go around and no one's allowed to speak and you write down your thoughts and then everyone holds them up. And it really is enlightening. It's a nice way to bypass some of the idle things that are ingrained. We respect our elders. We respect our teachers. Uh, the last thing we're doing is we look at things where we have criteria and the criteria aren't necessarily defined. We look at a large number of cases and see how it plays out, what things are independently predictive. I love that answer. It sort of segues into the next question, which I wanted to ask you if you have a diagnostic process, sort of a metacognitive process when you approach each slide. And it sounds like you sort of already touched on that you look at it first blindly without knowing the history on the requisition. And then... It's a gestalt, right? It's like recognizing your sister, you don't say, well, you know, two eyes, a nose, a mouth. You just look at her and you know, it's your sister. If she were to dye her hair, it's still your sister. You'd say, hey, you did something to your hair, but you still recognize her. Yeah. Then there's the translating it for the students. Okay, how did you arrive at that? And that helps you put it into words for yourself because portions of it are really subconscious. They're reflexive. And it makes you better when you have to put them into into words. The last scenario is when you look at it and you draw a blank. Yeah. Right? Where I see all kinds of stuff, but it's not gelling as a diagnosis. 
Now I'm going to look at the clinical question and look back at it. Okay, now does that make sense given that? What steps do I need to get? Is it, do I need lab testing? Do I need more clinical? Do I need IHC? You know, what, what do I need to do now to, to get to a useful answer? Because there's someone waiting for an answer on the other end. Do you think that with experience, as you've become more and more senior in Durham and Durham Path, the instances where you put the slide up and you just, you draw a blank, does that decrease with time? Well, thankfully, yes, it becomes less and less common. But those things still occur. And then what's really helps us now is in so many of these cases, we have a clinical image. Yeah. And, and we can get to the chart easily, right? Electronically. And even when it's an outside case, you know, more and more people send images with it and it just makes it so much easier to yeah. to put it together. And at least, you know, we're we're a team. Where, where do we go next here? I yeah. mean, they understand... If it's confusing clinically, it may not be straightforward histologically. It sounds like your diagnostic process does relate to metacognition when you said it's gestalt. That's like sort of thinking fast and just taking it all in. And then the slow analytical, for example, like when we don't know right away when something is. But also once you have a gestalt to check with the clinical to make sure you're answering the question that's presented, etc. You touched on bias a little bit earlier. And I know you've written a fair amount on bias as well. What do you think every doctor and patient should know about bias? that it is innate. It's something that's useful. We could not function in a world where we perceived everything. Right. The buzzing in the background, the fly going by, the, I mean, you couldn't get your work done. You couldn't function. So you filter out things. And much of it comes with maturity of the brain. Young children hear every sound in every language in the world. As you develop your own language, you extinguish the ability to hear those other sounds because they're not relevant. And we do that with all sorts of things where you filter out what's not relevant so you can see, you know, the the tree for the forest. Yeah. But you got to be sure you're not missing the forest for the trees. When did you filter out the key thing that you should have seen. And that's where bias comes in, right? You know, most commonly in a medical setting, cognitive bias, where you just filtered it out because your brain considered it not relevant to the question at hand. Sometimes it's because we bias ourselves by looking at the history first, right? You know, they're looking for a pigmented lesion. So I wasn't really paying that much attention to the lymphocyte, right? You know, it could be that, simple, or they were looking for a pigmented lesion. So I really wasn't thinking it could be Pippa from lupus. Biasing ourselves with history, that first objective look can bypass some of that. Being willing to go back and look again. Yeah, no, that's true. Sort of an unbiased, unfiltered approach sometimes works best. Yeah. Is there any lesson that you wished you had learned earlier? Patience is one. One of the best lessons I ever learned was from Someone who left medicine, her life was not working. The kids were unhappy. She was unhappy. Her husband was unhappy. And she hung it up. And they lived on his income. And she took care of the kids until they were, you know, off to school and more independent. And then she picked up practice again. And she was so much better just as a physician coming back. She was having more fun. And so I learned two things. One is the taking time for yourself. 
because I think I was always the worst at that. The second was reinventing yourself is okay. Change is okay. Big changes are a little bit intimidating, but change can be a good thing. Do you have any final thoughts? Just that there's no one right answer in life. On a slide that's basal cell or not, there's probably one right answer. But choices in life, there's no right answer. They're just different. It's not the destination, it's the journey. Thank you so much for talking to me. I've known you since I was a resident, actually. I didn't say this before, but Dirk came and interviewed at UC Irvine when I was a resident to be chairman. And me and all of the rest of the residents, we wanted Dirk Elston to come. (laughs) He was our top choice. Of course, we didn't have the power to make that decision. I've known you since then, and you've had such a big influence on me throughout from then to now. So thank you. Vice versa. I mean, I always learn as much. I think I get as much as I give. And working with you has always been a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you.